Please welcome Jeff. Thank you. I appreciate that. Good morning. Hey. That's not necessary, but I'll take it. Thank you. How are you today? Uh, there's a lot of uh, the announcements and um, messages that Rebecca conveyed are, are new, particularly the one about Matt's transition. And uh, uh, did I say that right? Uh, all of a sudden, I, as a, a sophomore mathematics teacher at Bible High School, I have a million names in my head and sometimes I miss them. But I will be praying for you for this church in a time of, of, of transition. And that's uncomfortable. That's new and, and um, uncertain terrain. And I, I will keep you in mind. Uh, I want you to know that it is a tr- it's always a treat to be here. Um, the DNA of, of this place, even in the context of you moving to the middle of this room and surrounding one of the, a couple of the folks that have been a big part of who you are, that's very much the DNA of a community that formed me many years ago in San Francisco. So I always feel like I'm a little bit like I'm coming home when I, when I come to Bay Maroon. Um, Hopefully you, you welcome my return too, although I'm sure some of you had not bargained on getting a double dose of me today, one in the music and another in the message. As they say, more is not always better. Sometimes it's just more. <laughs> some of you might be even thinking that less of me would be more, and that's okay too. I feel that way about myself quite a bit, and, and speaking of my penchant for self-reflection and deprecation, We, all of us, are right now in an acute season of just that, what the global community of Christ calls Lent. Literally meaning spring, Lent is a time marked by the 40 days, numbered from Ash Wednesday until Easter, during which time we examine ourselves in light of the very, very sobering journey that Jesus took toward his third Passover feast in Jerusalem with his disciples one that would ultimately be his last. The gospel is that you and I, all of us are anxiously anticipating his next one with us. Followers everywhere and for hundreds of years have historically adopted certain passages of scripture to consider during each season of the year. And today we're going to hear reference to three of what are often designated four passages per Sunday. The first one, of course, was the one that Suzanne read, uh, the 27th Psalm. The opening, as it goes, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? It concludes with one of my favorite, albeit elusive lines in all of the Bible. I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I have to confess to you, though, that sometimes I'm not quite so sure I will. My father wasn't quite sure either. A college English professor, Larry Livingston Finger, he was as much a creature of habit as I am. He would rise each morning, every day of the week. He would eat his hot bowl of oatmeal. Then he would pick up the yellow multivitamin sitting next to his glass of orange juice and he would take it. But at least one morning a week, he very much doubted that God was on the other end of the prayer he was raising at the time. He too was made of dust, as am I. 
as are you. In the words of Isaiah, smoldering wicks are we, a bunch of bruised reeds. Struggle, we most certainly do. And it's fairly odd that I talk like Yoda. <laughs> Despite what we have seen and heard and witnessed, we often find ourselves in this state of uncertainty and doubt. And we wonder. The good news is that we are in very good company when we do that. The second passage of this day, this particular Sabbath day, is in Genesis 15 where the father of our faith, Abraham, is wondering out loud and at fairly great length what to make of this promise that he had received that he would be a father of nations. His friends are starting to wonder if he was hitting the bottle a little bit too often. I mean, that he would be a father is laughable. He and Sarai were comfortably the age of grandparents at the time and childless. Now, the frequency of Abraham's reminders of this little inconvenient truth to the Lord God was increasing steadily day by day, and God got more than a little irritated and shot back this rejoinder. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old. Anyone detect a pattern? A female goat, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Another of my favorite passages in the Bible, I revere this one precisely because I have no idea what it means. <laughs> and I know of only a fraction of what is going on here. What I can surmise is that it's dark. It's really very dark. And Abram went down in the way infants go down, in a way he probably hadn't gone down in a very long time, in a way he probably desperately needed. Then when it could get no darker, the darkness was lit up. First by smoke, then by flame, and both passed through the middle of it all. This time it was before one man. But 500 years later, the exact same thing would happen in the presence of a million of Abraham's descendants. Of course, 
Abraham had no way of knowing that at the time. You and I have that wonderful benefit. What we're confronted with here in this explanation-defying incident is the mystery of God. The divine brushes up against the human and thankfully we are left without words to describe the wonder of what it is we witness. All we know is that we're never quite the same again. Abraham wasn't. His grandson Jacob encountered God like this and walked with a limp the rest of his life. That's what it is to be visited of God. That's why I don't give a tinker's damn whether you can apply one single thing I say this morning. Not one. I don't care. The only thing that matters is that God in his faithfulness will move you right now on the inside. Perhaps in spite of anything I would say. The character of just such an encounter is what makes God who he is. Explainable, he is not. What he is, is transcendent and imminent all at once, at the same time. In the same breath. And we know at least in that moment, at least then, beyond doubt that we have had a brush with the living God. The space that exists between him and us has gotten blissfully thin. And suddenly, out of nowhere, all our anxiety flees away and a peace comes over us. All because heaven has come down and his glory has shone all around. So said the shepherds. Some centuries later, the writer of Hebrews would say this, musing, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, of course, this wasn't exactly the understanding of the disciples some years prior to the writing of this. And when I say not exactly, I mean it in the same way that Hertz did when describing how other rental car companies were not exactly like them as in, not even close. Now, to Peter's credit, one day in a flash of inspiration, he blurted out the now famous answer to Jesus' question regarding who the disciples thought he was. You are the Christ, the Messiah of God. Now, this became for him, as often as it is for us, one of those times where we say a lot more than we realize at the time. Because on the heels of this great confession of Peter, Jesus himself began saying things, very odd things. 
confusing matters greatly by saying how he must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders of the people, killed, and three days later be raised. He kept saying that if they wanted to follow him, they must take up a cross similar to his own. To lose their life, to have any hope of finding it. He was heard saying that some of them would not die before they literally saw the kingdom of God. So it was in this state of competing thoughts, spinning in their heads and an overload of paradox, a severe disorientation and a major deprivation of sleep that Peter, John, and James had a mysterious encounter of their own in the same ballpark as that of Abraham, long referred to all of us by the words transfiguration. And it's conveyed to us by Luke in the ninth chapter of his gospel. And this is what Luke said. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. As in a brief and aside, I have no idea how they knew that. But apparently they did. Okay, now back to the regular scheduled programming who appeared, both of them, in glory and spoke of his exodus. And that is the term in the Greek New Testament. Spoke of Jesus' exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, as I mentioned, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus... Master, it is good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And here's the key phrase, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now for the longest time, I thought this incident was about something that happened to Jesus. And then one day I decided to actually read the passage. Yeah, that was supposed to be funny. Let me get note of that. Change that for next time. Then one day I decided to read the passage and for a long time we have to understand that preachers everywhere have been hammering away at the disciples characterizing them as dense. Agreed? Now, my advice to preachers is that they might want to rethink that posture. 
First reason is that one day those same preachers are going to meet Peter, John, and James. The second reason is that disciples are no more dense than we are. Amen. This incident is for our benefit as much as it was first for the benefit of Peter, John, and James. Remember that Jesus took them with him up that mountain. Let's start there. He took them so that they could see. When they got up there, the weather was clear. And what they saw was Jesus in full glory. The appearance of his face was altered. His clothes sparkled the white of which the makers of Tide would be envious. It was HD and 4K long before those terms were ever coined. Now the point isn't that Jesus was changed. The point is, is that the disciples suddenly saw him the way he actually is. That's the point. What happened atop that mountain wasn't for Jesus' benefit. It was for the disciples. It's for ours, you and me. It was about what they would see with their eyes. What they saw was a Messiah to be sure, but not just another one on a long, long string of charismatic human figures claiming to be the Messiah. This one held court with the likes of Moses and Elijah, you know, the ones from a thousand years ago. He was moving them, was Jesus, as he is moving you and I into a fuller and more complete understanding of who he is and why we can trust him. The problem for them, as it is for us, is that they were barely awake. They were barely out of their slumber. It was only at the tail end of the incident, mind you, by grace, that Peter realized in part that something was going on. So he did what he does best. He started talking. Now, in case you think I'm hammering him, look who's talking now. the audacity of it all. Peter and I, you see, we're overachievers. But that goes with being a little bit behind the curve when things start. Now start with how Peter addresses Jesus in light of the wonder of all that he has just seen. He addresses him as master. Now we all think that's lofty, but that was a respectful term at the time, but it was a strictly human scale reference. Master, like teacher. After all of that, that's the best Peter could come up with. And frankly, it's probably the best I would have come up with too. Secondly, there's this three booths. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. As if all three of them are sort of standing on equal ground. So you can see Peter, as you, in the same way that you and I would, was, was missing it. He doesn't get it. Neither do I, frankly. Now, it's right here that we all meet the limits of visual experience. There are limits to our ability to comprehend history. 
So Luke shifts the narrative rather dramatically, frankly, from what the disciples see to what they hear. What we see in this life calls for affirmation and confirmation and, frankly, interpretation. The whole thing reminds me of traffic accidents. I want you to take a look at this one. It'll repeat. I'm going to watch that all a long time. Traffic accidents are notorious in a very particular way. Ask five people to tell you what happened in the case of one accident, and guess how many versions you'll get? Five. Everybody sees the same accident, and yet no one describes it the same way. So, God the Father decides to make the rare appearance here, and the weather on that mountaintop all of a sudden goes south, and the cloud rolls in. In case you and I in our own short-sighted density might miss it, Luke mentions this cloud not once, not twice, but three times as if it was important. God in His grace will not let us miss the truth that we so desperately need in our lives, the change for which we so desperately long in our souls. With a specificity not to be missed, God speaks not to Jesus, but to the three disciples. He doesn't say, you are my son, to Jesus. What he says is, this is my son, to the disciples. The three who are suddenly awake and on their faces in awe of it all. And then in an instant, it's just Jesus. In an instant, it's just Jesus. He's left there alone. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. It's almost as if he's enough. And that's because he is. In the end, there's one left standing alone. Jesus. No longer would they hear Jesus saying things about Moses from then on. From that day forward, they finally understood that it was Moses who'd all along been talking about Jesus. In closing, I, I want to quote you Frederick Beekner from his book, Whistling in the Dark. His inimitable way of capturing the good news of Jesus and its indelible impact that it has on us, we the people of the dirt, the ones with whom the Holy One of God has brushed up against and changed forever. In Jesus, God has authored the new exodus, broken the chains that once bound us, and freed us to follow Him in the glory of every seemingly mundane detail of our daily lives. And this is what he says. He writes, His face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. Moses and Elijah were talking to him, and there was a bright cloud overshadowing him, and out of a voice saying, This is my beloved son, 
with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The three disciples who witnessed the scene fell on their faces and were filled with awe. It is as strange a scene as there is in the Gospels, even without the voice from the cloud to explain it. They had no doubt what they were witnessing. It was Jesus of Nazareth, all right. The man they'd tramped many a dusty mile with, whose mother and brothers they knew, the one they'd seen hungry and tired and footsore as the rest of them. But it was also the Messiah, the Christ in his glory. It was the holiness of the man shining through his humanness, his face so afire with it they were almost blinded. Even with us, something like that happens once in a while. The face of a man walking his child in the park, of a woman picking peas in the garden, of sometimes even the unlikeliest person listening to a concert, say, or standing barefoot in the sand watching the waves roll in, or just having a beer at a Saturday baseball game in July. Every once in so often, something so touching, so incandescent, so alive, transfigures the human face and it's almost beyond bearing. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this day and the chance to experience you directly with our brothers and sisters in the community of faith. We're grateful that you give us testimony, witness, that you came, walked the paths that we walk, that you lived the lives we did and faced down death and beat it. So we pray, Lord, that you would awaken us anew in whatever way you see fit to do today. Whatever minute detail of this day might bring to us, might show forth that you are and that you are with us. We ask, Lord, that you would breathe new life into us. Make us the instruments of your peace and mercy in a world that's desperate for it. And we commit to you the life of this community and pray that you'd be over it and in it in the days forward. Guide and direct decisions and movements and whatever will you see fit to pursue, oh God, we pray you'd make it clear to each of us, not only as a community, but also in each of our lives that we wake up to tomorrow morning. Whether it's at Oracle or at the local grocery store or a school where we teach, a gym that we attend. Walk with us, Lord, and make us the instruments of Christ to the world. And as we do so, we will remember always, first and last, to return glory to you and give thanks to you in all that we do. And we lift this prayer up to you. Ask, Lord, that you multiply everything we've done this morning, that your kingdom might come. We ask these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, in honor of... St. Patrick, let's close with St. Patrick's breastplate prayer. We claim freedom today through a power beyond our ability, an expression of the Trinity, through a belief in holy mystery, 
through acceptance of a profound unity experienced in the whole of creation. We claim freedom today through the power of Christ's birth and baptism, through the power of Christ's merciful works and just witness, through the power of Christ's sacrifice and resurrection. We claim freedom today. Finding inspiration in those who trust and love as children, in good beyond my understanding, in the hope of resurrection and coming justice, in the prayers of matriarchs and patriarchs, in the words of wise elders, in the faith of those called to great task, in the innocence of those set apart, in the deeds of righteous individuals. We claim freedom today, marveling in the beauty of creation, the radiant light of sun, the splendor and warmth of fire, the persistence of life, the flash of lightning, the boom of thunder, the depth of sea, the perseverance of the earth, the foundation reliably of the rock. We claim freedom today, asking for divine potential to inspire us, for God's strength to lift us up, for God's wisdom to guide us, for God's eye to provide a vision, for God's ear to augment mine, for God's word to speak for us, to us, for God's love to guard us from temptations of forces we don't understand and those we can never comprehend, from those we perceive as our enemies and those who would truly do us harm, deserved or undeserved, help us to pray constantly for them all. We summon today all these powers between us and evil against every cruel, merciless power that opposes our body and soul, against the crafty words of false prophets, against the corrupt values of this world, against the false teachings of heretics and the hardened hearts of those who are always right, against the constant creation of false idols, against the seductive spells, against every knowledge that devalues a person's body and soul. Christ, shield us today against anger against jealousy, against fear, against timidity, so that your justice may flow through us and we may share in its reward. Christ with us, Christ before us, Christ behind us, Christ within us, Christ beneath us, Christ above us, Christ on our right, Christ on our left, Christ when we lie down, Christ when we sit down, and Christ even when we get down. May Christ be in the heart of every person who thinks of us. May Christ be in the mouth of every person who speaks of us. The vision of those who see us. The hearing of each people who listen to us. We claim freedom today through a power beyond our own. An expression of the Trinity. Through a belief in holy mystery. Through an acceptance of profound unity experienced in the whole of creation. May the grace and peace of Christ be yours now and always.